So people love to own things. I love to own things. Uh, I know this because, uh, because I love to own things so much, my husband and I have a recurring fight over Cool Whip in our freezer. Uh, when Rob and I first got married, he brought home a tub of Cool Whip that he had purchased at the grocery store. He put it in the freezer, and then he just didn't touch it. It just sat there for three weeks. And so, of course, over that three weeks, I ate some of the Cool Whip, just a spoonful here, a spoonful there, right out of the tub, until there was maybe only a quarter of the tub left. And then one day, my husband uh, goes into the freezer and he opens up the tub of Cool Whip, uh, which again, by the way, he let sit for three weeks and didn't touch. He opens up the Cool Whip and he goes, you ate all my Cool Whip. Your Cool, his Cool Whip. I thought erroneously, clearly, that, 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 that we co-owned the Cool Whip because both of our, you know, our paychecks pay for the groceries, but alas, I was terribly mistaken. And, and I argued my point. How was I supposed to know not to eat it? It's just been sitting there. You haven't touched it. It was not doing its job adding coolness or whippedness to any food. I helped the Cool Whip achieve its full potential, but he was, he was unwavering in his claim to ownership. Now I know. Whoever goes shopping, that's the person who owns the Cool Whip. It's not true of any of, other, uh, of our other groceries, just that one. So now we always have two tubs of Cool Whip in the freezer so that we can both own the Cool Whip. But sometimes his tub sits there and mine is empty, and that's why it's a recurring fight. <laughs> it's a good thing that he loves me and supports what I do, because I just really, I invite the church right into our marriage just every time I talk. People have to own things. Even if, even if they're not using them, they like to own them. So, so, so we can reserve the right to use them or to not use them whenever we want to. Maybe we want to reserve the right to share them only if we choose to or with the people that we choose to. So today we're, we're going to be talking about stewardship. And I think this is a, is a challenging conversation for Christians because in accordance with our faith, we believe that God is the owner and the author of all things which means we don't own our own stuff, which means the stuff that we have must, how we use it must then be informed not only by our desires, but by the desires of God. And Christian or not, I think humans find this really difficult because we'd, we'd rather be the owner, right? We, we, we'd rather not have to consult anyone before we use our resources. We, we wanna be the sole proprietor of the Cool Whip. So we're starting a, a new series today, as John mentioned, The Lesser Known Parables. Jesus, when he was teaching to the crowds, would, would often teach in story form. He would, he would use parables. These are stories with normal earthly interactions, but which had a spiritual meaning behind them. And, and there are lots of different kinds of parables. There's, there's metaphors and similes, which just compare one thing to another. You are the salt of the earth. There are epigrams, short, memorable, pithy statements. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And then there are story parables, uh, parables, parables which have a, a narrative plot, um, like the Good Samaritan, which many of us are familiar with. Parables are often multi-layered in their meaning. The, the meaning of a parable is not always offered at face value, and this is on purpose. Jesus even tells his disciples, they ask, why do you teach the people in parables? And he, and he basically says, so that the people who are ready and willing to receive me can understand the meaning, and so that the people who are unwilling to receive me will miss the meaning entirely. So, so, so they can be difficult to decipher. In fact, the parable we're looking at today in Luke chapter 16 has at least three distinct morals that are offered in the text itself. So, so it can be confusing. We're going to spend the, the bulk of our time today talking about that first and primary moral, but the other two are kind of incorporated into the teaching as well. So let's take a look at the story together, see what we can make of it. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It's in your bulletins if you want to read along with me. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? 
Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each of the master's debtors and he asked them, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it out for 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is God's word. A lady after the first service said to me, I didn't know that that was even in the Bible. Is that in the Bible? It's so weird. What a weird story. So first, let me, let me explain a few kind of key elements of the story. The dishonest manager, also called the shrewd manager, the unjust steward, is, is basically an employee who manages this rich man's money. A steward, he would, he would keep the books, he would, he would make purchases on behalf of the owner, uh, he, he had great power to, to, to lend or to collect on his behalf. The owner probably wasn't even consulted for all of the financial decisions, but he would have looked at maybe a summary of, of the accounts each month or each quarter or so. But this manager, we find, has been careless with the owner's money. The, the owner finds out, he fires him, and he says, but I want to see a final account of the books. He basically calls for an audit before the manager is dismissed. So the manager doesn't make any argument. We can assume that he is, in fact, guilty of the carelessness. And then he says to himself, what am I going to do? I, I, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? And then he says, I know. I'm going to go to the owner's debtors, and I'm going to reduce their debt so that when he throws me out, at least they will take me into their houses. So while he's still in charge of the money, he carries out this plan to, to make some friends for himself because he knows that the day is fast approaching when he will have to rely on the charity of others. But then, in this rather unexpected twist, in verse 8, the owner, when he finds out what the manager's on, the owner, instead of reprimanding the dishonest manager, commends him for being shrewd. And that word translated shrewd, phronemos, actually means something akin to, to prudent, wise, thoughtful. Now, now, what on earth makes this shrewd? What makes it prudent, wise, and thoughtful? Because if he's just cheating the owner out of the owner's stuff in order to help himself, that doesn't seem prudent, wise, and thoughtful. That, that just seems sneaky, right? Well, yes and no. Little cultural context. According to Jewish law, usury was forbidden. That's the practice of, of charging interest on loans, at least for fellow Jews. You could not charge a fellow Jew interest if you made a loan to him, not on money, produce, land, anything. But a manager, a steward like the one in our story, was making the business decisions on behalf of the owner, ostensibly without the owner's knowledge. It could appear that the owner didn't know what was happening. So the manager, he could tack on interest, he could add on his own fees, he could turn a bigger profit, and since the owner wasn't the one making the business decisions, he couldn't be accused of breaking Jewish law. Now, it's very unlikely that the owner didn't actually know what was happening, and, and even if he didn't, I doubt God would really honor that little loophole. So when the manager hears he's going to lose his job, he goes to each of these debtors. He says, how much do you owe? 900 gallons of olive oil? Make it 450, and, and so on and so forth. And he, he, he does this. We only get two examples, but there's probably a long list of debtors with whom he negotiated these new rates. And the original bills 
would have been written and signed by the debtors themselves, and, and these original bills were in possession of the manager. So when the manager destroys the, the originals and replaces them with the reduced amounts, there is no proof of what he's done. The only proof is in the owner's head from the last review of the accounts. Now, 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 this is why this is just so brilliant. It's so brilliant because the owner will never go after the manager for this money. Why? Because the, only, the, the, the debtors are his only witnesses. And if you ask them to testify, what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, yes, the manager did reduce our debts. He reduced it by removing the interest charges the interest charges which were expressly forbidden by the law. The owner can't go after the manager without exposing himself to be a crook. So what does the, what does the owner do? He, he saves face. He says, good job, manager. Or in other words, I, I'm so glad that that crooked manager made things right by knocking off that illegal interest that I knew nothing about in any of our business dealings. And then the owner ends up looking like this godly law-abiding man. The, 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 the manager looks like a repentant man, and he makes many, many friends in this transaction. So in that light, it does seem to be prudent, wise, and thoughtful. But then I think a, a fair question for us is then, what portion of this man's actions is Jesus asking us to actually emulate in verse 9? I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's he telling us to do here? Is he telling us to be dishonest? My daughter is four and, and she absolutely hates going to bed. We have a bedtime routine before you judge me, Christians. Um, we have bed, bedtime routine. We take a bath, brush teeth, lay down, read a story, say prayers. And then we have this sweet little thing we do that we picked up from our former pastor. I say, Ember, if God lined up all the little girls in the whole wide world and said that I could have any one of those little girls I wanted, I would pick you. And I touch her little nose. So, so every night, it's the same thing. Her, her physical and emotional needs are met, and yet she will find all manner of reason to get out of bed and to come downstairs and to talk to us. Mommy, mommy, I need to go potty. Okay, go, to pot, go potty. No, go back to bed. Mommy, I need water. Okay, great. Here it is. Go back to bed. Mommy, the bunnies are attacking me again. I got nothing for that. Go back, go back to bed. I, I don't know what to do for you there. She hates going to bed, but she also hates having her door closed. So that has become our new leverage. So, you know, she, 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 wants to, she wants to get out of bed, and I'm like, babe, if you get out of bed, I'm going to close the door. And the first time that we did this, she tested us. And so she got out of bed, I closed the door, and she screamed, and she cried. And I felt like my, my heart was just being ripped out of my chest and stomped on. And, but, but I knew this was good for her, so, so I held my ground. And then after a couple of minutes, I open the door up again, I tuck her back in, and I say, okay, babe, now if you want me to keep the door open, what do you have to do? And she's like, stay in bed, mommy. And I'm like, okay, great. So it worked, at least for a little while, because my baby girl is no quitter. She is like a, she's a manipulation ninja. She works us, she, she just tries out new strategies until she pinpoints our weaknesses. When, when she was 18 months, I caught her practicing crying in my mirror. Practicing crying. She'd walk up to it, happy as a clam, look at it. <laughs> just, you know, just trying it on. Might come in handy someday. So anyway, a few days ago, she's, she's in bed plotting. And, and, and after a few minutes, she just bursts out of her room, hops down the stairs, walks right up to me like that's not illegal. And just, just as I'm about to say, okay, babe, I'm going to have to close your door now, she takes my face in her hands and she says, mommy, if God lined up all the little mommies in the whole wide world, 
and said I could have any one of those little mommies I wanted, I would pick you. And so she's winning. Every day she's winning with that. But I don't feel like I'm losing either. That's like the problem, right? How do you discipline that? You tell me, because I can't. I know she just came down to test me. I know that it had absolutely nothing to do with actual affection on her part, but you know what? She's winning, because that's a really good strategy. Questionable motive, brilliant execution. I think one of the, the, the most important things to note about this text is that it does not say that the owner commended the dishonest manager for acting, it, he didn't commend the, the, the shrewd manager for acting dishonestly. It says he commended the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. He's not being commended for being dishonest. He's being commended for having good strategy. And there's a big difference. There's the, it's the strategy that's being praised, not the motive. Jesus is pointing out in this story that you know, this is an unrighteous person, a, a, a son of this world, and he is using good strategy to, contr to contribute to his temporary future. How much more should the sons of God act shrewdly to benefit their eternal futures? He's saying the strategy is good. You should use your resources. You should spend your resources to make friends. You should be generous with your money to make friends. You should be generous with your time to build relationships. You should be generous with your talents. He's saying the folks in this world are using a good strategy and their, and their motive is, is wealth that they can't even take with them. How much more? How much more should we act strategically and use our resources to win friends, to add to an eternal inheritance, not, not a temporary one. So we, we should, we should use our resources. We should use our resources, our temporary finite resources to build an infinite and eternal kingdom. Because you know what, here's the truth guys, it's all his stuff anyway. It's all his stuff and, and, and some of you might very reasonably ask, well what do you mean? What do you mean it's all his stuff? I worked hard for that money, listen, I am, I am absolutely certain you did. I am certain you worked hard for that money. All I'm saying is that most of us had some resources at our disposal when we started working hard for that money. Number one, we're alive. Super hard to make money when you're dead. Super hard. Number two, you were born in a place that, in a family that afforded you certain opportunities. For example, you weren't born in the lowest caste in a slum in India. You had nothing to do with that. You, 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 you had an education, you had people who supported your endeavors, you had relationships and experiences that taught you a good, solid work ethic. You have the use of your arms and legs for the most part. You have a brain that's been enhanced by proper nutrition. It's, it's not just grit and savvy that makes us successful. We are all working with borrowed resources. Deuteronomy chapter eight says, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase and all you have is multiplied, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's not our stuff. It's not our land, it's not our gold, it's not our brain. Everything we have, our talents, abilities, time, all of that is on loan from the Lord. We don't own these things, they are not ours. All we can do is steward them poorly or wisely. 
to build his kingdom or to build our own. It's not our stuff. It's not our stuff. It's his stuff. And yet he only explicitly asks us to give him back a tithe, a tenth of it. If I were God and someone like me came up to me and said, I can't believe you're asking me to give you 10% of the stuff I own. I'd say, kid, I can't believe I'm letting you keep 90% of the stuff that I own. With that attitude, I should slap your face with a catfish. Why a catfish? Because I own those two, I do what I want. I would make a really terrible God. Guys, I'm not picking on you for having money. It's, it's not bad to have money, but we have to recognize that we are managers of it, not owners. Money's not bad. Money, money is actually a really important tool. It's good to have money. The, the oft misquoted 1 Timothy 6 says that it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, not, not money itself. And, and, and you, could, you could substitute a lot of different words in there. Influence, power, sex, none of those are actually bad themselves, but, but the love of them can be. Money is amoral, it's a tool. And like any other tool, it can be wielded to build or to destroy. Everything we have, not just our money, is something that we steward on God's behalf. Everything we have, we can invest. It's something we can employ shrewdly to win friends for heaven. God, God doesn't want your money. He wants you to be generous. Because he knows that, that when we're generous to one another, to people that we love, to people that we don't love, to people that we don't even know yet, the world will take note of that. And maybe somebody will become curious about the God we live that way for. It's not your money he wants. It's, it, it's to cultivate generosity in our hearts because that has a much higher ROI than cash. Where are you withholding generosity from God? Where are you withholding generosity? Maybe, maybe it's not money. We can withhold generosity in more ways than just financially. In fact, we can be extravagant with our giving but not actually be generous people. That's not what God's after. We can, we can give money in order to wield control over people, and that's not generosity. I'll give an example. My, my husband raises support for his role at Global Aid Network, and if you've never heard of that, that phrase, support raising, it just means that people donate every month, and that's how his salary gets paid. Most of the people who work at Crew, they're supported missionaries. That means that uh, they, they raise money, and that's how they get paid for their jobs. And the whole culture of support raising was super foreign to me when, when I started dating Rob nine years ago. I didn't love it. Uh, money was very tight when I was growing up, and so the idea of depending on what felt like the charity of others for a paycheck was just terrifying to me. That is, that is not a thing that I wanted to trust God with. I got my first job when I was 11 years old. I worked in an arcade. I was a quarter girl. I gave people quarters out of my marsupial pouch. And, and I've had a job every year since then. And so, I, so I, I never wanted to depend on others for money. So it took me a while to understand this concept or for him to convince me. Like, support raising, it, it's, it's not about asking people to give you money specifically. It's about asking them, inviting them to give toward this ministry the vision of this ministry. Their giving makes the ministry possible. If these folks didn't give, this, this particular job just wouldn't get done. And so it took me a while, but I'm on board now. And, and it's actually a really wonderful exercise in trust. And, and my husband trusts God so much more quickly, so much more easily than I do. And I really believe that it's in part because he spent half of his adult life uh, practicing by being supported staff. But years ago, there was this lady and she was on my husband's support team before we got married. And, 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 and any time that she saw on Facebook him doing something that was expensive or leisurely, like eating at Chick-fil-A, 
it's super expensive, right? It's like really expensive these days. Or, or going to the movies, she would see him doing these things and she would write to him and she'd be like, why are you squandering my money? You know, it was only, it was like 10 bucks a month, but she paid close attention to where every single dime of it went. And so, and she, she even had advice on like what he should be doing when he wasn't at Chick-fil-A. Like she'd be like, why, why do you even, why do you come home? Why don't you just stay in the Middle East? You can Skype your wife, just stay there. So, so eventually my husband ended up asking her to, to leave his support team. And, and if you're in the culture of support raising, I know you're like, what? You never fire someone from your support. You don't, fi- that's the one thing you never do. You never fire someone from your support team. You give up posting pictures on Facebook before you fire someone from your support team. Nobody does that. In fact, I'll probably get an email later from one of you asking for contact info. <laughs> Listen, I wasn't crazy about it either. I, d- I told him, you know, just switch over to Instagram. She doesn't, she doesn't have an account there yet, but he has, he has more integrity than I do. It's possible, I think, to be, to be generous with your money, but not actually generous at heart. If you're giving generously, you're giving without strings. Not, not so you can have a seat of honor at the church or so you can have a, a, more of a say in what people do. Or, or giving to God so that you can dictate to God what he should be doing with you in your life. That's not generosity. If you give away your money, but you use it to control other people, to wield power over them, that's, that, that's actually a transaction. That's, that's, I give you this and you give me that. That's, I give you money and you give me obedience. That's not generosity. And, and, and as an aside, and, and I'm not saying this because my husband is supported, I, I'm, I'm saying it because at Summit, I get to work alongside some of the most hardworking men and women that I have ever met in my life since the age of 11 when I got my first job. And they'll never say it for themselves, so I'll say it for them. Be generous to your ministers. You, you should want them to go out on a fancy date with their wives. Because you know what? There, there is nothing that the enemy wants more than for their marriages to crumble. There's nothing that the enemy wants more than, than, than to, to get a foothold in their exhaustion and, 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 and to make them flee the church and never look back because they've burned out. He wants that so bad. We should want them to get away. We should want them to be able to take a break. Any person who signs up for this job knows that they have a target on their back. So, so, so be generous to your ministers. And I'm not saying to give them money that the, the church pays their salary, but, but be generous with your prayers. Be generous by letting them really be unavailable on their day off or, or when they take a vacation with their families. Be, be generous with your encouragement, with your words. I promise you it matters so much more than you could possibly know. You know how you can be generous to John Parker? That guy loves warm hugs. Just long, intimate, lingering hugs. He wakes up in the morning, first thing he thinks is, who can I wrap my arms around today? I'm, that's a lie. I'm such a liar. I don't think he likes being touched at all. Just encourage him with your words from a distance of at least 18 inches. <laughs> what was I talking about? Uh, where, where are we withholding our generosity? Maybe it's not our money. Maybe, maybe it's relational generosity that we're withholding. Maybe you're, you're, you're given money, but you won't give your time. And, 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 and you work those impossible hours to pay for the nanny and the cleaning lady and the, the pristine school supplies in August, and you even manage to give to the church. That's great, but not if... You're giving that money so you can avoid giving your time and your love and your attention to the people who, who, who need you most. Time is a precious commodity. Be generous with it. 
because when it comes to time, we are all relying on the charity of God. Maybe it's not money, maybe it's forgiveness that you're withholding. Maybe you are not generous with people's faults. And you've been mad at him for so long that when you think about reconciling, it's, it's not even that you don't know where to begin. Now it's that you don't even know that you want to begin. Forgiveness is a, is a precious commodity. Be generous with it. Because when it comes to forgiveness, we are all relying on the charity of Jesus. Where are we withholding generosity? Maybe you don't have two nickels to rub together. You literally cannot withhold generosity with your money because you have no money to speak of. You, you haven't worked in a while and, and, and God doesn't want, he doesn't want you to give him 10% of nothing. That's not what he's after. But I promise you, he has made you rich in something. You have time. Be generous with your time. You have words. You can be generous with your encouragement. You can be generous with your forgiveness. You can be generous by believing the best in others and making an allowance for their faults. You can be generous with your vulnerability. You can offer people your heart. You can be vulnerable when, when people are afraid to jump first. We are all stewarding precious resources for God. Are we managing them shrewdly? Are we leveraging them to make friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings? Now, it's very possible that at this point, some of you are kind of breathing an enormous sigh of relief because I've not actually asked you to give money. I've just said, be generous. And you're like, got it. I will be generous with my time. I will be generous with my forgiveness. And John Parker will not leave my presence without receiving a lingering embrace. Well, sermon's not over yet. Sorry, guys. We, we, we can't overlook the fact that Jesus is, in fact, talking about money in this parable. In, in God's economy, generosity is more than just giving money, but it's certainly not less than that. And, and there is a reason, there is a reason that God asks this of us, and, and it may not be the reason that you think. He doesn't need your money. He didn't need it. When Ember was first learning to ride her little radio flyer trike, I walked right beside her so I could regulate the speed, watch for cars, help her negotiate a turn if she needed it. But as she got more confident on her bike, um, she, she, she just she became drunk with the power of speed. And she would try to pedal faster than I could keep up with. And, and she just thought it was hilarious. She would wait. She would wait, actually, strategically until I got distracted by something, talking to Rob, adjusting the dog's leash. And then she would just take off, Vin Diesel style, just living her life one quarter mile at a time. And, and, and we're coming up to the curve of this cul-de-sac and there, there weren't any cars to worry about, but, but she had to turn the bike at a sharper angle than usual. And because it's a circle, she had to turn the bike and keep turning it. And I'm watching and, and I see the wheels start to come up off, off of the road. And I see this happening and I see that she has lost control of the bike. The bike is now controlling her and I can't get to, I can't stop it. And I'm running, I can't get to her before she tips the bikes and she skids about a foot across the concrete. Now, fortunately, she was fine. She just scraped up her leg pretty bad. And she got up and she kind of like shook herself off a little stunned and she walks over to me and she goes, Mommy, I hurt my foot elbow. <laughs> your foot elbow? Yeah, my foot elbow. Do you mean your ankle, baby? Yeah, my ankle. Listen, what would you call an ankle if you didn't know the proper name for it? Bad vocabulary, excellent deductive reasoning. Money, money is a good thing. It's a good thing, but, but it can be intoxicating to make a lot of it or to spend a lot of it. And if we're not careful, it can get away from us. And then suddenly we discover that we're not steering it, but it is steering us. Verse 13 says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. We can't. We can't serve them both because, because at some point, 
Money will ask something of you that is in direct conflict to what God asks of us. Maybe you've already experienced this. God knows, he knows. Sometimes we grasp things so tight that we don't recognize that they've started grasping us back. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your stuff. If he wanted your stuff, he'd take your stuff. He's God. The reason that God asks us to give our money is because there are few things in this world with a greater capacity to displace God for the affections of our heart than money. That's why he wants us to give. Not because he needs it, but because we need it. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to give your life to something that won't give you life back. He doesn't want your money, he wants your heart. And if money is the thing that is standing between him and your heart, then yes, he wants you to give until it hurts. Because that pain is not a wound, it's a surgery. Don't give your life to something that won't give you life back. We, 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 we can't take it with us, guys. None of us can take it with us. Nobody rents a storage space when they downsize to a one-bedroom coffin. So cultivate generosity in your heart. Become free from the stuff that has its clutches in you. And, 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 and if you're broke right now and, and you've never had any money, you might feel like, that's right, Atherton Carnegie III rolling up to the 11 a.m. service in your Range Rover. You should throw a bone to the little guy. Loosen up those tight fists. Well, listen, this parable is directed to, to the disciples. And most of them lived a pretty average lifestyle. Most of us are wealthier than they are, uh, than they were. Um, all of us are wealthier than at least 90% of the world. And I, I, I know you don't feel rich, but listen, we're so rich that we are wearing clothes to this service. We wouldn't let you in if you were naked. We're wearing, and, and they're probably not only, they're, they're probably not the only clothes and shoes that we own. We're so rich that, that when we leave this service, we're gonna go eat food, most likely. And not only that, we're, we're gonna get to pick where we want to eat food. Will it be Chalupa's at Taco Bell or Planet Smoothie? Who knows, you don't know. Although, admittedly, there's probably a right decision between those two choices. Most of us are pretty rich. And, and I think, uh, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about it. I think we reject the idea that we're rich because we don't know how to feel about that other than guilty, but that's not what God wants. No, I don't, he doesn't want you to feel guilty. That's not holy and it's not helpful. If you, if you feel guilty about your wealth, all that means is you still consider yourself an owner and not a steward. If you remember it's not your stuff, you can't feel guilty, but you can't feel guilty about someone else's stuff. You can't feel, you can only feel responsible. And that is a much more productive emotion than guilt. So, so I'm not saying stop making money. No, make, make all the money. I'm just saying steward it wisely. Invest it where you are guaranteed a return. There will never be a stock market crash in heaven. There will never be a depression. The real estate bubble will never burst in our father's house. Every investment that we make into God's kingdom with our time, our talent, our money, every investment you make will be eternal, 100% secure, paying dividends and interest that, 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 that our lives on earth are simply too short to measure. We should be generous because it's shrewdness. Let us be shrewd in our management. Surrender it to God. Use it to build his infinite and eternal kingdom to win friends who will welcome us into heavenly dwellings. I don't know about you, but I am not particularly excited about the thought of streets paved with gold 
and sapphire footstools. I don't even have a category for that. I'm, I, I'm not moved by the idea of the ornaments of heaven. But what I am moved by is the thought of being welcomed into heavenly dwellings by the people that I love and that I miss, that I'll get to see their faces again, and because our sin will be burned away in the transition from death to life, not only will I love them, but I'll actually like them now, too. <laughs> because, because those parts, the, he, he won't be an addict anymore. She won't be controlled by fear. And all the fights and all the hurt will be a distant memory, and we will be left with only the parts of us that were perfect before the world was not. Do you ever wonder what your spouse would be like if you kept all the personality but took away all the sin? Do you ever wonder what your parents would be like if you took away all the vice but kept all of the love? There, there won't be a person in heaven that you don't want to embrace no matter how much you despise them on earth because that part of them will be burned up in the glory of God. C.S. Lewis writes, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one, be, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So let's be generous. With our time, our talent, our money, our vulnerability, our honesty, our forgiveness, our love, because every interaction we have has the power to point someone toward or away from Jesus to point them toward one or the other of those eternal ends. Be generous because your charity may win friends not only for you but for heaven itself, and each one of them will be someone who welcomes you into eternity. Charity demonstrates the shrewdest possible investment in the economy of God because in God's economy, people, people, are the only treasure that we have the opportunity to take with us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the ways that you provide for us, not just in terms of resources, but, but in everything, Lord. Thank you that we have breath in our lungs. Thank you that we have people who love us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to cultivate gratitude in our hearts and to count our blessings, to know that all of these things come from you because you're good and because you love us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we Consider what it means to be a manager and not an owner of the things that you have blessed us with. Lord, I pray that you would give us the, the courage and the strength to begin to hand over, to hand the reins back to you, to hand over the ownership back to you, even though it's already yours. I pray that we would be able to do this and practice this discipline so that the stuff that we are clutching doesn't get its clutches in us. The stuff that we're hanging on to doesn't start to hang on to us and somehow, in some way, prevent us from giving ourselves fully to you, from devoting our lives fully to your, to your kingdom in this world. 
Lord, never let stuff prevent us from love. So, Lord, we surrender everything that we have to you this morning, and we pray that you would give us wisdom to manage it shrewdly. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.